All right, if you're uh, joining us for the Psalms, uh, we're going to be in uh, Psalm 34 to start today. And the gentlemen are handing out notes. And there's a lot of notes today. No guarantees we're going to get all the way through, but that's all right. Uh, If we don't, we'll come back to it. Uh, I have thoroughly enjoyed my time in Psalm 34. Hopefully you will as well uh, as we go through it. Uh, For those of you who may just be sitting in for the week, what we've been doing over this uh, quarter as we're looking at some of what are called the historical psalms, there are certain psalms that in their, uh, what are called their psalm title, uh, underneath you might say Psalm 34, and then it's going to give a little description. It gives us a historical review or historical reference to go back to in order to understand what is the context that David typically or the psalmist is writing this psalm out of. And so as we've been looking through, we've looked through a number of those different psalms. We're going to pick up in Psalm 34. We started the historical context uh, about three weeks ago or so, uh, looking at what had happened. We're at a moment where in, in David's life, and, and what, does he, what does he say? So let's do a little, bit of a, a little bit of review to catch everybody up and to get our minds back into that moment uh, as, we, as we look at it. Uh, we are, we've seen, if we look back in 1 Samuel, which is where we'll end up for a few minutes this morning, but... Uh, David has been anointed the king of Israel, though Saul is still the king. And most of you are familiar with these accounts that occur, but 1 Samuel 16. So David is anointed the king of Israel, 1 Samuel 17. David then slays Goliath, even though at this point Saul is not aware of David being anointed king. He is, uh, he is aware that David is something special. David goes, he kills uh, Goliath. As he's coming back and after a number of other routings that occur through David, uh, we, we know that the, the ladies of Jerusalem were shouting out and chanting, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has tens of thousands. This begins to incite that jealousy and that rage into the life of, into the life of Saul. So much Saul, so that Saul's jealousy toward David increases to the point where Saul is going to begin to try and kill David multiple times with the spear, setting up, uh, setting up conspiracies in order to, to grab David, to uh, catch him, and then to put him to death. And as he seeks to kill David, we've, we've uh, uncovered the account. We talked about the account a few weeks back where his wife, Michael, lowers him out the window. He flees, he escapes, comes back for a little bit, but now he's run on the run again. And he gets to the point where in complete desperation, he flees to, uh, he flees first to Nob, where uh, the priest uh, Himalak is there, gives him the, the, ta- the bread from the table of showbread, also gives him Goliath's sword. But then after that, he flees to, he flees to Gath. So he flees to Nob, and then that's where Doeg had seen him, and we talked about that in Psalm 52. And then David flees, leaves Nob, and he flees to Gath in 1 Samuel uh, 21. So out of this little section here, 1 Samuel 21, 10 to 15, where David goes into Philistia, into the capital area of one of the major five cities, probably the capital considered Gath, uh, and there, Psalm 56, which we covered a few weeks back, is where David has been captured by the Philistines, 
and they're looking, and at that point, they're sort of mocking, isn't this the, isn't this the king? Isn't this the, the one who's the ruler? Isn't this the one who slayed his tens of thousands that the people are all chanting about? And here we have him. And David pens 50, Psalm 56, remember where he says, what, what can man do unto me? He, he gets to this point where he's realizing, I've been fearing the wrong things. I've been fearing man. I need to be, and we're going to see in Psalm 34, fearing God. Psalm 34 is now when he's going to, the Psalm title says, when he fakes his insanity before the, the, the title says Abimelech, we'll talk about that uh, in a few minutes. There's, there's some uh, interesting aspects, and we talked about this is where the, the journey that David took uh, from, basically in this area, he went to Nob, and then he went down all the way to Gath in order to flee as far away from he could from Saul. He was in fear of Saul, uh, in fear of what was going to be happening in his life. And so Psalm 34 is very interesting. Let's talk about that a little bit. A Psalm of David is what the Psalm title says, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, who drove him away and he departed. So this is the time where, where David flees now. Not only was he flee, he gets specific and he says, it's, it's based specifically on this area when I feigned my madness or changed my behavior uh, before Abimelech. Uh, there's an interesting fact. Let's talk about the psalm, and then we'll get into some more of the historical background. This is called an acrostic psalm. And what I mean by that is, if you notice on the, uh, on the right-hand side, Hebrew reads right to left. <clears throat> the, the first letter of each of the Hebrew alphabets, right down through Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalet, Hey, Vav, they're all, they're all the first letter of each sentence or each verse of this, of this uh, psalm. And so it's like if, if you were going to write a psalm about God, you were going to start with A, B, C. So you're, the, the psalmist is confined. He says, he states, he works on doing this. So he's confined to this, which makes it a little difficult to outline because he's sort of just randomly throwing thoughts in in order to fit this poetic structure of A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And there's a number of psalms, a couple psalms like that, but this is one that's uh, very, very popular because it actually uses all of the all of the, the letters in the, in the Hebrew alphabet. It's an acrostic psalm. Jehovah is used 16 times in this psalm. But none of the uses are used as an address to him. It's talking about who God is. It's not at this point David pleading out to God, which I think plays into our understanding of where David's at when he writes this psalm. He's not writing it in the midst of distress. He's writing it on the heels of it after he's been out of it, after he's able to look back. So he's not, he's not addressing God, help me, God, help me, Jehovah, help me. But rather he's saying, this is who Jehovah, Jehovah is. This is what Jehovah did. So the psalm becomes really a testimony. It's one of relief. As you read through the psalm, it's one of praise. It's one of excitement. And as we, as we look back over the, the weeks that we've been talking about, David's been in distress and distress and distress. He's moving. He's struggling with the fear of man, the fear of man. I'm afraid of what they're going to do to me. And now he's at this, the hindsight of it, though he's not out of it by any stretch, as you, as you covered last week with George, looking back, he's still going to end up in the caves, fleeing to the caves. But from that moment, when he realizes, wait a second, I'm in, I'm in enemy territory in Philistia. I am before the king. I'm in trouble. And then he gets on the hindsight of it, and he's able to say, wow, our God is great. Our God is good. 
So let's, let's talk about the psalm a little bit, and we'll dive back into the history, and we'll go back and forth. So Psalm 34, verses 1 to 3, we're going to talk about the promise of praise from the delivered. It says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make her boast in thee, Lord. The humble shall hear thereof and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. It's, it's really interesting how he, he talks about this praise that he's offering. David highlights the frequency of his praise. It's not, it's not just in verse 1. It's not just, I'll do it some of the time. He's like, I'm going to bless the Lord at all times. His praise, praise of Jehovah, is going to continually be in my mouth. So it's something that he is going to be uh, consistently doing in his life. And I, I don't know about you, but I find that to be difficult at times because I find myself not always wanting to give praise. Oh, things go good. Yeah, I'll praise but do I make it a habit in my life? Do I have a consistent time when I praise God or a consistent aspect way I praise God? The focus of his prayer is not on his experience or even his deliverance, but rather his deliverer. As I mentioned, Jehovah's mentioned 16 times, nine times in the first six verses he's, he's mentioned. The word deliverance or a, a derivation thereof is used multiple times, three, three plus times in the first couple of verses. Uh, throughout. So he's talking about not so much the experience, but rather the one who delivered me. So as we go through the psalm, be thinking about he's talking about God, the one who delivered, and not only the one who delivered, but eventually he's going to get to the point, he's going to say, you need to experience this as well. You need to enjoy, enjoy that aspect. So our praise, it can be private as I look at this, but notice in verse three, He doesn't just say, okay, great, I'm going to praise God. But rather, he says, let us come together. Let us worship the Lord together. He says, uh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. David is not simply content with offering up private praise, though it's important for us to offer private praise to God. We ought to. Some of those things maybe we don't want to share with others, but God, God delivered. But in those moments when we can, we need to be praising God together. We need to be encouraging one another with the way that God has blessed or asking others, how's God been blessing or working in your life? Let's, let's praise God together. When we spend time in prayer, oftentimes uh, we get together and we pray. And what do we do? We instantly go into the, the prayer list and say, oh, okay, this is what we need to ask God for. This is what we need to ask God for. This is what we need to ask God for. Have you ever thought about getting together and just spending time praising God. I remember when I was a preacher boy way back a long time ago, uh, I remember Pastor, Pastor Tony and I were actually preacher boys together. I, I'm surprised he ever did preacher boys after that. But uh, we, Pastor looked at us and said, okay, for the next hour, all, you, all I want you guys to do is just spend time in prayer, but I want you to just praise and thank God the whole time. I'm looking like, seriously? Like, okay, God, thank you for the world. Okay, great. But it was really neat to just spend that time. And as we were both able to just keep continually praising God and thanking him for all the different things he had done, it was, it was refreshing. And it challenged me to think, how many things do I take for granted? How many things do I not simply say, wait, God, thank you for shoes. Thank you for breath. Thank you for warmth on a freezing cold day. You know, we don't always think about that, but let me encourage you to spend time, try and find time, even husband, wife, family, praising God, not just at Thanksgiving time, but rather throughout the year saying, this is a continual thing to be in my mouth. 
So David, David urges his fellow worshipers to join him in corporate worship, corporate praise of God, saying, hey, this is important for us to be, to be doing, coming together um, and talking about the name of God. So what prompts the praise? Now, notice in verses 4 through 7, David's going to give the, the, the reason for this praise. He's going he's gonna to say, here's what's, here's what's wanting me to exalt God, to, to bless his name. He says, I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. What's interesting to me is I always, I always have heard, I think probably because I had to memorize it, but there's some songs out there where verse 4 is always linked in with verse 3. But the way it's structured, it, verse 4 is a little bit separated from verse 1 through 3 is this, the, the praise. Verse 4 through 7 gives you that reason. He said, I sought the Lord. He heard me. He delivered me from all my fears. Now, also, when we think about delivered, don't think instantly New Testament deliverance, the idea of salvation. Think Old Testament as well. The, the Old Testament idea of deliverance was not, they did not have the complete understanding of salvation that we have in the New Testament. They're looking, David's looking and saying, the deliverance from my immediate fears, my immediate troubles, my struggles that I'm currently in. So he's saying, I, God delivered me from, from my situation that I'm struggling and battling right now. So he says in verse 4, I sought the Lord, he heard me, he delivered me from all my fears. They looked onto him, they were lighted or they were radiant, and their faces were not ashamed or oppressed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him from all his troubles. The angel of the Lord says, which I believe is a pre-incarnate aspect of Christ, talking about Christ, encamps around them that fear him and delivers them. So in this, in this psalm, uh, David's goal is not to focus on his problem. Verse 4, basically, he lays it out. Verse uh, 6 gives a, a recap of it again, where basically he's like, all right, I was there, I sought him, he heard me, he delivered me. He doesn't get into the full thing. He wants to focus, rather, on calling the, the praise to God and the blessings to give to God for his, his blessings and his protection. Now, if we go back into this psalm, we're going to take a little bit of the historical aspect and understand what prompts this praise. The, the psalmist says, if you notice up in Psalm 34, the, the, the title, it says, um, he changed his behavior before Abimelech, who drove him away and departed. Now, if we go to 1 Samuel 21, which is where we'll, uh, where we'll look for the historical context. 1 Samuel 21, you do not see the name Abimelech given. You see the name Achish given. Uh, and we've talked about Achish and uh, being the king of Gath, of that area, of Philistia. So which one is it? Is it Abimelech or is it Achish? Do we have an error in the Bible? No, we don't have an error in the Bible. We need to understand just real quickly uh, some of the historical aspects. If you look back through Genesis 20, Genesis 26, this morning we'll talk about, pastor preach on Judges, about Abimelech, First Chronicles 18, now Psalm 34, you're going to see the name Abimelech come up often. So is it, is it just the same guy all the way through and this guy has a really long life? Is it multiple people, different names? What, what is it? Abimelech actually started as a name back in Genesis, but it became known as a title. It became a title for the kings of Canaan. It was something that was like we would, we have, we have, we have Trump, we have Obama, we have Bush. We could go right down and, and give them their official names, but they're president. We, we, the title is president. That would be the idea of calling him Abimelech Trump. 
That's, that's the idea of Abimelech. It's the title that's been used in the Canaan, the Canaan lands. It means this. It means the father king or king, father of a king. Most times as the kings are talking about it, they refer to themselves as the father king. I'm the one who oversees. I'm the one who chastises. I'm the one who delivers. I'm the one who provides. I am Abimelech, father king. Uh, so there. So Achish, being the king of the Philistines, he would be referred to either as Achish or Abimelech. So it, it could be, okay, here's Trump or here's the president. That's, that's the idea of, of what it would be. So it, there's not a discrepancy between Psalm 34 where it says Abimelech and then Psalm, or 1 Samuel 21 where, where Achish comes on the scene. Now the question has to come up and it, when you start understanding what's going on, I asked the question, was David a Benedict Arnold? We all know from our history, Benedict Arnold being a traitor during the Revolutionary War, the War for Independence, uh, that, that was the case. But uh, when we, what we need to understand is ancient Near Eastern warriors, um, what, would, what would happen during that time? Ancient Near Eastern warriors, they were, um, when a warrior was dishonored or considered dishonored in their own nation, they could go to another land even in their mortal enemies, and they could come in and not be killed. In fact, often the kings would then take them and be willing to put them into battle and put them, make them a warrior, a champion for them. So is David trading sides here? Is David going, thinking of going to Philistia and then going to, to go to battle and go to war for go to war for the Philistines. It doesn't seem that that's, that's where he's headed because if he was, then he wouldn't have feigned. He would not have feigned. Now later on, 1 Samuel 27, he does, he does use this. There does come a point in David's life where he flees again to Philistia and he begins to rout other nations. Philistia believes it's on behalf of them, but actually David's just still driving. If you look at all the nations, he goes around and takes out. They're all Canaanites who are still dwelling in the promised land, and David's just using his time to, to drive them out. But he does, he does use this idea of, I'm a dishonored warrior in my nation. I'm going to come here for protection, and I'll fight for you. But it does not seem at this point uh, that that is what, what David's, David's doing uh, to, to get protection from Abimelech. So I don't think we can say that, that he's there. But that's important to understand even for future, though we won't cover it in the class, that that were there. So, so why would David change his behavior? Why would he, why would he feign madness, uh, insanity, derangement, whatever term you want to use, uh, before the king? I believe, first of all, obviously feared his life. That's been the theme that's occurring through Psalm 56, Psalm 34. We're going to talk about fear here in a second. Uh, when we look back into 1 Samuel 21.10, I believe it is, where it says he feared Saul. He goes, and now I'm in Philistia, and now I'm in fear of Abimelech going to be taking my life. And I believe it is because of a lack of trust in God to deliver. David is not at a high point right now in his life. He's at a lower point. He's trying to figure out all the things he can do to get himself around rather than trusting in God for deliverance. And in Psalm 56, I believe that's the repentant aspect of this situation where he's at. He flees he gets captured. He goes before the king. And as he's going there, he's, as he's being taken to the king, he's realizing, wait a second. Why am I fearing what man can do to me? 
I need to be trusting in God. I need to be trusting in his bountiful mercies, his blessings. All the difficulties of life I'm facing and I'm not trusting in God. I'm trying to figure out how to manipulate it myself. I'm trying to figure out how to make it happen in my own strategies, my own ways, rather than going to God first. And Psalm 56 seems to be that repentant aspect. Now Psalm 34, he's going to look at the, the joyous aspect of God delivering even despite David's, David's attempts to, to flee, free himself. So I believe those are the two ways, reasons he does that. Was this a a wisdom or was this lack of trust when he he did it? It seems that David is acting out of the fear of man and not out of the fear of God. Based on his Psalm 56 experience, why am I fearing what man can do to me? He was struggling with that, not fearing God. And especially, as you'll see, when we get into the rest of this Psalm, Psalm 34, where he talks about the fear of God, the fear of God. You need to have trust the fear of God, have the fear of God. And he, he'll talk about the fear of God coming up. So he's making this transition in his life where it's like, I need to stop fearing humanity. And I really need to fear God and have reverence and respect and trust humility before him. Psalm 53, 6, the confession, the vow of trust. Psalm 34, Jehovah, not David, is the deliverer. And that's to me, is very important through the psalm. As I mentioned, he's addressing Jehovah. He's not saying, look what I did. Yeah, I, I, I feigned myself before Abimelech. No, he says, I sought the Lord. He heard me. He delivered me. He keeps going back to God being the deliverer, not his cunningness, not his, his great wisdom that he somehow came up with in the, in the moment. Now, do I believe that we have a responsibility to ask God for wisdom, to apply our intellect, to apply our knowledge, to apply our understandings to the situations we have in life? Absolutely. But I also believe, as you look at James chapter 4 and 5, why, why we don't go today and tomorrow and plan to buy and to sell and to do these things and to get great gain without asking if the Lord will. Going back and saying, God, what do you want me to do? God, what direction do you want me to take? What, what do you want me to have? Can you give me your wisdom in these things? So there's that balance between the two, seeking God's wisdom and using and trusting in him and using our, our intellect that God has graciously given to us. So why would Abimelech drive David away? Why would he say, okay, get out of here? I mean, why not just put this guy to, to death? He's your mortal enemy. He has struck massive blows time and time and time again against the Philistine nation. Part of it um, comes down to the idea of the deranged individuals, for lack of a better word, someone who's feigning insanity or seems to be insane. In Canaanite religion, they were protected by the gods. You did not do harm. In fact, you went out of your way to help and to... To, to be a blessing to them. That was the, the historical norm in the Canaanite area. So seeing David to this point where, if you remember in, in 1 Samuel 21, uh, if you go down uh, verse number, I just lost it here. Uh, verse 13. He changed his behavior before them and feigned himself mad in their hands. He scrabbled on the doors. What he was scratching, we don't know. Some say he was uh, writing profanities. I don't, I don't see David doing that. Some say that he was writing curses against the gods of the, of the Philistines. Some, some say that he's just writing absolutely nothing, just gibberish on the walls. Uh, but he, he scratches on the walls, on the doors of the gates, and he lets spit fall down into his beard. 
So, so here's this guy. He's the, the disgrace that David's feeling. There's, there's David's vandalism and his personal disgrace convince Achish that David was of no use to him. This, this guy used to be a great warrior, but look at him now. You know, he's, he's under some great stress or the gods have cursed him, but we're not going to, we're not going to do anything. He's vandalizing the area, but the personal disgrace, you can look back through the Leviticus, the law to have drool in your beard. I mean, even now we, we sort of look and go, you know, you ever see somebody, they get it there and you're like, please just wipe, oh, you know, here, let me do that for you. And, and you have that feeling, but he's just allowing the drool to come down in his beard. I just, I, we never picture David this way. You know, we always picture David, this great masculine feet looking for, you know, chiseled and all, but here's this man who's, he's so, such in a difficult time that he's allowing himself in public to have this personal disgrace of just spit running in his beard. So, so he looks and says, he's gone. Now, whatever it was that happened to David in Gath, it caused him to come to this point where he acknowledged his inadequacies and his own wisdom. And it brought him to a point where once again, he placed confidence in Jehovah. We don't have much more beyond, I sought the Lord, he heard me, he delivered me. This poor man cried, he listened, he delivered me. We, we don't have much beyond that situation. But we know this, that David gets to a point at a low point in his life where he says, man, I've hit rock bottom, I've done the wrong. It's almost like the prodigal where the prodigal gets to that point where he's like, Man, it's better for my, the servants in my dad's house. They hit rock bottom and they're like, I need to change what I'm doing. I'm going in the wrong direction. And so, so David does that. So there's this prompting of the praises we talked about in verse 4 to 7. It's interesting how it flows out. He says, okay, I sought the Lord. He heard me. He delivered me from all my fears. We'll go back to Psalm 34 there. Uh, now that we have that, that context of what's happening... And then verse 6 gives us almost a parallel account. He says, this weak man, he's, he's talking about himself, this distressed man, this man who has nothing left to offer, cries out, the Lord heard, the Lord saved from the trouble. So he's talking about from the fears and the troubles that he's in, God is the one who delivered. And in between you have verse 5, he says, you look to him for deliverance, you will never be ashamed. Uh, it says that they that looked to him, or literally looked to him, and be lighted, or be radiant, and your faces, their faces were not ashamed. Look to the Lord for deliverance from the fears. Verse 7, he says, if you learn to fear him, you will be delivered. He talks about the angel of the Lord, or I believe is again, a pre-incarnate aspect of Christ. Talking about Christ here. God is the one who encamps around them, He's the one who protects. He's the one who provides. You learn to fear him, you will be delivered. So David continually, he, he just takes it in a neat poetic way. He says, all the troubles and all the fears that we face in life, we must, we must trust in God for deliverance. We must fear him and we will be delivered. And so David, David brings that together and says, that's where he wants to go. And he noticed, notice who the angel, the angel of the Lord is the agent of aid. It's not himself. It's not his society. It's not his government. It's not his friends. But rather at this point in his life, he's saying, the Lord is the one who is encamped around me. He is the one who will provide. And we need to, we need to make sure that we are trusting in God as the agent of aid in our life and not just simply our own wisdom, our own intellect. So fear here in relation to God is the key to deliverance is what David is getting at. 
And as he goes through, he's saying, praise God, praise him for his deliverance. You want to experience the deliverance. You want to be able to enjoy the the deliverance. You need to learn to fear God because that is the key. So as we look at verses 8 to 10, we're going to start keeping that in mind as he goes through. And he starts to say, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusts in him. He says, use your good senses. Taste, see, God is good. And so he's going to talk and says, taste and see that God is good. So what compromises comprises uh, goodness? Who can experience God's goodness? How, can, how does one experience that goodness of God? Those are all questions that David's going to start answering here because those are legitimate questions that if we, if we truly look at our lives, who doesn't want to experience the goodness of God? Who does not want to experience the deliverance from difficulties? So how, how do we start on that journey? How do we, how do we go forward? So let's, let's, ask, let's talk about that. What compromises God's goodness? It talks about protection, and it's going to talk about provision here. Taste and see the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusts, takes shelter in him. Verse 9. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For uh, For there is no want to them that fear him. The young lions, they do lack and suffer hunger. But they that seek the Lord shall not want any good thing. So he talks about here that the young lions even. It doesn't, he doesn't just say the lions. He's talking about the young, the strong, the, the mighty lion. That you look and say, they're, they're never going to lack. They're never going to struggle. But he says there are times that even the great hunter goes without provision. They lack. But he says those who are fearing God, those who are trusting, finding shelter in him, they will not lack There is protection. There is provision that occurs. He talks about the saints. Who can experience it? The saints can. He he highlights our position in God. He says those who are are actually one of God's, one of God's holy ones, one of God's followers. He says the saints can experience this. Uh, Verse verse number, oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. He's giving that command, that plea, that desire. And not just the saints, and this is important because oftentimes in our, in our Christian walk, and especially in American culture, uh, Christian culture today, we have this idea that Jesus is enough. Now, is Jesus enough? Yes, absolutely. Jesus is completely enough. He is all sufficient. But we, we have this idea in culture that, okay, as long as I claim Jesus and I say I'm a, I'm a Christian, then it should all work out for me. And when God doesn't work in my life and it doesn't work out, well, you know, it's God's fault, not mine. But he talks about not just the position of being a saint. He talks about here being somebody who is committed. Uh, he says that, um, come, I will, you children, hearken unto me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. So he's going he's gonna to come back here and say, I want to teach you what the fear of the Lord is. But he talks about those who trust in him. Blessed is the man that trusts in him. They fear him. They seek after him. Now, that's, that's our responsibility as believers. That's where we are supposed to, not just to be a saint, because that is our position. If you are a believer, our, our position as a chosen saint, called one, a holy one, that position in Christ is secure if you are a genuine believer. But the rest of our life, that sanctification process, that growth process in our life, 
that requires work on our part to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. We have a responsibility before God to work at being committed to him. So we, we trust, we fear, we seek after. We played a, we had a game in here, uh, activity Friday night. And one of the games that we did with the teens is all over the entire, the entire building, I had buckets of candy. And I had uh, lots of boxes of bigger candy, like king-size candy bars and things like that, all over the building. And I said, okay, here's what you got to do. You got to run out, you got to grab it, you got to bring it back to your team, and they're going to make this big pile of candy for their team. You say goat, man, they were just all out, running around, seeking as intent as they could. It was a vigilant seeking, going after. And that's what we are to be doing when it comes to being committed to Christ. To vigilantly seek him out, to, to know him, to fear him, to trust him. So we can experience, so how do, you, how do we experience this goodness? If we're saying, wait, if, if we can be one who experiences God's goodness, that's what David says, taste, see, the Lord is good. I want you to experience his provision. I want you to experience his protection, even in the difficult times. What, is, what does he say? He, he looks now, and he's going to look at the next verses, 11 through 22, and he's going to help us understand the fear of God. And it was, it was a challenge to me because I've never really thought about in going to Psalm 34 to talk about this idea of the fear, the fear of God. And yet David, David lays it out very, very clearly uh, in these passages um, that, that we are to be fearing God. Notice, uh, notice how he picks up here on um, verse 11. Come children, hearken unto me. I will teach you what the fear of the Lord is. It tells me right away that this is not instinctive in our lives to fear God. It's not something that, okay, you get saved and instantly you have this great deep reverence and fear of God. He says, let me teach you what the fear of God is. And so we have to, we have to say, okay, wait, if I need to be instructed in it, then it's something that I need to learn and then something I need to be, to be working on. I will teach you the fear of the Lord is. What man is it that desires life and loves uh, many days that he may, he may see good? So David's going to talk about it. He's going to say it's an instinctive. And fearing God becomes literally a prerequisite to experiencing the goodness of God in our daily lives. We can't just look and live however we want and expect God to bless us. We can't live however we want and just say, well, God, you owe me protection and provision because I am a saint. I am a, I'm a saved one. That's not, how, that's not how David lays it out here in our lives. He says, well, who doesn't want? We all want that life where, verse 12, uh, we all desire the life and to love many days and that we may see the good things of God. That's our, We want to see that, but the prerequisite to it is, let me teach you what the fear of God is. So David says, your, your right motivation for the good things and experiencing the joy of life comes back to the foundation, the basis of fearing, fearing God. So he talks about the behavior. And what's interesting is when you think about our behavior, it represents our goals. And as our goals become more like God, our behavior becomes more like God. And our, as our behavior becomes more like God, we become more like God. And it becomes this, this cyclical aspect where we're growing closer to God. Uh, the other psalm, steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. And he delights in his ways. Um, the idea that as I'm walking, my, my steps being ordered by God. The more I follow God, the more I walk in his path. The more I follow God, the more I walk in his path. It's that continual aspect through the Psalms 
where David says, hey, these are your goals, your behavior will follow. So if our goal is to fear God, if our goal is to be committed to God, the goal is to trust God, then our behavior, it is, it is to follow, follow through. He, he looks and he says, keep your tongue from evil and thy lips from speaking guile. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. He, he lays out for us that there's a behavior change that needs to take place in our lives. He says, Here, here's the way to start fearing God. To start demonstrating that you, you fear God. He says specifically in his case, he says here, guard your mouth. Verse 13, he highlights that. He says that we are to keep your tongue from evil speech. To, to hold it back, to protect it, to, to be the sentinel in front of your lips. That when something wants you, guard that. You say, wait, am I, what, I'm, what I'm about to say, you know, what I'm about to type, is it kind? Is it true? Is it necessary? Is it uh, important? Is it, is it you know, the, all those things that we, we think about that we're, we're saying, are those things that are coming out, are they, are they necessary? Are they true? I need to guard my mouth. He says, speak truthfully, not deceitfully. So verse 13, he says, make sure that, that your words when you're talking with people are honest. Verse 14, he says, turn away. Turn away from wickedness. As he, as he highlights there, he says, to depart from evil. It's that evil is there. It's lurking about. You see it. You depart. You turn. You say, no, I'm not going to be part of that. And if you are part, it then goes back to the idea of repentance. We all know we've been in parts in our lives where we are struggling. We are, we are following after sin. We're doing something wrong. The idea of departing to repent, to turn from it, to go toward righteousness is, is where we are to head. He says, practice what is right. Don't just, and, and he says, and do good. Oftentimes we, in our, in our Christian lives, we tend to think of all the things I can't do. Especially as we're, we're more immature in the faith, we look and say, well, I can't do this and I can't do that and I can't do that. And man, Christ just cramps my style. And it just, it just messes with me. But David says, okay, depart from the evil, but, but actively pursue doing good. Say, okay, hey, these are the things I get to do in my Christian life. These are the things that I can do without regret. I can be happy in them. I don't have to feel guilty before God. And so I'm going to do these things. I'm going to actively pursue after them rather than doing other things that I feel guilty about. So I, I look at my life, you know, what, whatever it is, am I seeking to do good? I want to fear God. I want to taste and see that he is good. I want to experience his provision. I want to experience his protection. I need to guard my mouth. I need to make sure that my actions are, are correct. I need to make sure that I am aggressively seeking peace with other people. Verse 14 at the end, he says, uh, seek peace and pursue it. It doesn't just say, all right, just, I hope, I hope this situation works out. You're in a conflict with somebody. You actively seek to pursue peace. They may not want to, but we have a responsibility. Remember in Matthew 5, I believe it is, where if you've offended somebody and you're on your way to, to worship, you drop what you're about, to, you drop your offering, you go and you find that person and you actively seek after reconciliation. To have unity in our body, we need to be individuals who are aggressively seeking peace. 
to have unity in our homes. We need to be aggressively seeking after reconciliation between husband and wife, between dad and son, between sister and brother. When the difficulties are arising, actively seeking to say, we need to fix this. What can we do? What can I do to actively accept and and work toward this idea of having peace? David says, you work on these things, you'll be working toward the fear of God. And as you work toward the fear of God, you will begin to experience the provision, the protection. You will taste, you will see that God, he is good. The fear of the Lord involves acting consistently with God's character and his commands. And I think too often, and I've, and I've done this and I've, I taught it, you know, way back with, with some of the teens, we, we talk about the fear of the Lord. And we talk about, and a lot of people, you read commentaries, it goes to this idea of reverence. And, and I do believe that the fear of God talks about the reverence of God, having this ultimate mighty reverence. But isn't there an aspect when people come face to face with God in the Bible, what's their response? Is there not fear? Is there not trembling? fall on their face before God. They say, depart from me. I'm not worthy. And, and there's, there's literally a shaking or a, a trembling that is involved. And I think, I think personally I've done this where I've, I've cheapened the idea of the fear of God. To just say, well, I, I have respect. I have reverence for God. There is a trembling that should take place when I am not following after God. When I am looking and saying, I'm going to do my own thing, I'm going to develop my own character, not godly character. I'm going to seek after my ways and not God's commands. And looking and saying, wait, he is God. He is omniscient. He's omnipresent. He is one who is looking and saying, this is how I want you to live. This is how I expect you to live. So I don't think, and I think it's important for us not just to teach the fear of the Lord. It's simply a great reverence, though I do believe that we are to hold God in great reverence but also this idea of he is God and, and I need to be careful. Because doing good, as is, is the passage talks about, always, or leads to enjoying good. I need, to, I need to fear God. I need to do good. And as I'm doing good, it leads to enjoying the good things of life. Now, we all know, and most of you here know, that there are times in your life where you're doing good and you don't experience good. And we'll, we'll talk, because David, David highlights that here. He's, he's a realist. But we need to understand that typically, as life goes, if you're doing good things, you will enjoy, you will enjoy good. Now, what is the basis for David saying all of this? Verses 15 to 18, he's going to highlight. He's going to highlight the basis. Why can he say these things? To fear God, to, to depart from evil, to pursue after righteousness. He says, because the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and his ears are upon their cry. The face of the Lord is against them that do evil, to cut off the remembrance of them from earth. The righteous cry in the Lord hears and delivers. There it is again, that same theme from earlier, the righteous cry. Now he's not talking about him specifically. He's now applying it to us. Remember, this poor man cried, the Lord heard, he delivered. Now we have the righteous cry talking about us in general. The Lord hears, he delivers them from all of their troubles. The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart and save such as be of a contrite spirit. So the basis, he's going to start laying out a difference between the righteous and the evil. And it's, it's fair to say poetically, 
if it's about the righteous, the opposite is true of the evil. If it's about the evil, the opposite is typically true of the righteous. So he says, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. He's going to use some anthropomorphic expressions. It's not saying the the eye of God. Uh, back on that, the, you know, I remember when this first this picture first came out. Uh, I think uh, it's, uh, yeah, Helix Nebula, whatever. They call it the eye of God. And everybody was all excited because we finally taken a picture of the eye of God in outer space. And this is, it's like, it's, it's, no, it's gas in space, you know. But the idea, the idea is important for us to understand that God is looking. The eyes of God are upon the righteous, he says. He's not, David's not looking and saying, I hope this is the case. He's, he's giving us some didactic teaching from an experiential and from an authoritative inspired point of view. David is saying the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. Even at times when we don't feel like it, they are there. The ears of God are open to the cries of the righteous. But I don't cry to God often. I cry to my spouse, which is important. I cry to other people. I I pray out to them. But do I cry out to God? He says the evil, though, the face of the Lord is against them. They're cut off from remembrance. So he looks looks at these these aspects here, and he's going to say, when we look at which side do you want to be on, I mean, we all, we all consistently say we want to be righteous, but look at the, the idea of cut off from remembrance. That he doesn't see them. He doesn't listen to them. They are, they are done. There will be an eternal punishment. They will be cut off. Lord is not just, the face of the Lord is against them. It's not the idea of, okay, I'm not going to bother with them, but it's the idea of it's set against what they are doing is wrong, and I am not going to look, and I am going to deal with that. You ever, you ever been that way? You look at your kid and they, your child does something and you're like, and you look away and you just set your face before you, you look back because of that, that righteous frustration that is within you. That's the idea of the face of the Lord is set against them. The righteous, the Lord hears their cries. He delivers from all of their troubles. He comes back to that in verse 17. He's close to the brokenhearted. Down in verse 18, it starts to talk about the ones that their hearts are just breaking before him. He talks about the, the crushed or the contrite spirit, the humble spirit. Not the proud arrogance of the evil ones. Not that I can figure this out myself. I don't need God. He's given me enough and I'll figure it out without him. I don't want to bother God with my petty insignificant troubles. Rather, God wants us to be pe- bother him with our petty troubles. He wants us to come before him. It's implied that for the evil, none of this is done for them. They don't experience that. So it goes back to, if I want to experience these things, I want God to hear my cries. I want God to see me. I want God to to be working on behalf of me. It goes back to those verses before where it's like, okay, these beliefs that I have or the behavior that I'm supposed to show about, uh, you know, guarding my mouth and, and keeping honest and doing right and fleeing evil and seeking peace. Those are things I need to be doing so that I experience the righteousness, uh, the, 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 the righteous aspects of God, his goodness coming to me. His righteous trust in the Lord is evidenced, is, is evidenced by their cries of deliverance, uh, let me just read it rather than try. The righteous trust in the Lord is evidenced by their cries to him for deliverance. Verse 15 and 17. 
they, they're not looking to themselves, but rather they're crying out again to God for deliverance in their life. It's very much in contrast when you look at the two. It's, not, it's David beforehand going out and I can figure this out. I am the great warrior. I am the man. I'm the strategist. I've done all these army military battles. I've got this all figured out. I've got life in my hand and I'm good. And he goes out and he finds himself captured, going before the Philistine king, drooling in his beard, and has nothing to offer in his pride and his arrogance. But rather, those who are humble, those who are brokenhearted, have that contrite spirit. The Lord hears them. What am I to do? I am to walk humbly with my God, Micah says. That's my responsibility to be doing that. We want to experience the goodness of God. You want to experience his, his provision and his protection? Learn to walk humbly his way, in his world, with a humble, brokenhearted spirit. The righteous, those who fear God, are dependent upon God. They look to him for deliverance rather than trust in their own strength. This is a battle for me in Psalm 34 because I like to be in control. I do not like other people telling me what to do. I want to figure it out myself. I want that in my life. That's the type of person I am. And I don't think I am the only one because we all battle with pride. We all battle with self-sufficiency. We all battle with this idea of, I've got this covered. And so we look and say, I need to trust in God. What are the benefits what are the benefits? Now, I laugh because I put the picture up there, but it doesn't look like a picture of benefits. But what are, the, what are the benefits to trusting, to believing, to following after God? What does he say? Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Seriously, wait, you're telling me to live for God, to trust, and now what does it say? David, but he's a realist. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. It's not, it's not looking and saying that we're going to be delivered and we're going to have a lack of suffering in our lives. If they persecuted our master, our father, if they persecuted Christ, what are they going to do to his followers? The same is going to, to be the same. He experienced grief and hardship and difficulties. We will experience the same thing as believers. And the irony is, and, and I've had these conversations with, with some teens, some young adults, well, if I'm going to experience hardship, even if I try to do what's right, then why try to do what's right? I'm just going to go do what's fun because then guess what? People who don't follow after God experience hardship too. It's part of humanity. We all do. The idea here is not that, is, is that if I get saved, it, it takes me away from all hardships and suffering. no. That's not the case at all. We as human beings struggle through suffering. So following after God does not remove us from the suffering and affliction, but following after God and fearing God enables us to endure the afflictions, endure the sufferings, and experience God's provision and God's protection through them and after them. And that's what we want, and that's what we should long for. So we as, we as believers, we are going to still experience those difficulties. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. The one who is seeking him, the one who is still guarding his tongue in the midst of the difficulty, in the midst of the struggle, 
Do I rip people to shreds or do I guard my tongue? So he tells us God will keep us in our affliction and will ultimately deliver us from our adversity. There is an ultimate aspect. We need to remember that in the short, in the, in the, in the, the microcosm of time, well, it's the, the expanse of time, of eternity, our life is but this little infinitesimal speck. It's just, I mean, you can't even really fathom it. And we get so wrapped up like all the afflictions are so hard and I won't be delivered from this little time, but you know what? I'm thankful that I am the righteous and I'm going to be ultimately delivered from eternity of adversity and torment and difficulty. That's what we look forward to. And yes, we will suffer. Yes, we will have some difficulty, but we continue to keep our eye to the forward, to the, to the future knowing that God will ultimately deliver us from adversity. Verse 21, the idea of bad behavior generates bad experience, just like good behavior can generate good experience. Evil shall slay the wicked. This is important to understand that evil, doing what's right, it ultimately consumes the evil person. The wicked is consumed by their wickedness, which the book of Proverbs talks about all the time. That we live in wickedness, you're going to be consumed by it. It's going to hurt you. It's not simply, this is not simply fate, which catches up with the wicked. We don't, we don't believe in this idea of just fate. Well, it's their karma. It just, you know, they did bad, so the bad catches up with them. It's God dealing with them. The evil shall slay the wicked, and they that hate the righteous shall be desolate. The Lord, it's the, he, um, the Lord is the agent here. The Lord redeems the soul and none of them that trust in him will be desolate. The idea here is that the agent of this desolation is God. And we know from our biblical theology that ultimately God is the one. So this isn't just karma catching up with people. This isn't just fate. Well, if you do bad, you know what? It's going to come around and get you. We need to be careful that we don't parent that way. And just say, well, you know, karma's going to... You look and say, you're doing wrong. That's against God. And God will judge that. God will allow that to be found out. It will happen. And, and so we, we, we remember those ideas of, of there. Those who are the Lord's servants and have trusted in him will be redeemed and not held guilty. What are the ultimate benefits of fearing God, following him, being the righteous? Is that there's not an ultimate... There is not an ultimate uh, guilt, but there is a redemption. There is a being bought back. Uh, it's interesting. Verse 20 is used later on in John 19, 20, or 36. Uh, yeah, 36. He that keeps all his bones, not one of them shall be broken. It's referred, being referred to, to Christ on the cross, none of his bones being broken. The ultimate redemption. And so for us as believers... You are here today, and if you are redeemed, you have been saved. You have been bought with this price. Now glorify God in your bodies with our hearts, with our minds, with our words, with our attitudes, with our actions. Make sure, if we want to experience, to taste and see that the Lord is good, which David says we can, then we need to make sure that we are living righteously, walking the way that God wants us to, and living the way that God desires us to live. And then through that, we can praise God, giving him glory for all that he has done for us. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to live righteously, 
to taste and see your goodness. Lord, help us to desire to walk right, not to walk in evil. Help us to love you, to serve you, to actively pursue you. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you very much.